Crime Curious is a true crime podcast that takes an in-depth look into real cases. The content may be triggering or inappropriate for some audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Crime Curious. I'm your host, Sharnell Lennox. How are you all today? I am by myself in the studio, so if you're a Patreon, you're getting the video episode of this as I'm waving like an idiot to the camera here. I have a really gnarly case for you guys today, and I think that someone did I recommend this at some point in time, so I, I had it on my list, but I forgot to write down the names of people who requested it, so If you hear this name and recognize it, thank you for the suggestion, and sorry if I um, didn't give you proper credit. I am sitting here just rubbing my kangaroo scrotum sack for good luck like I do before every episode, and today I talked to a Patreon who is sending a nice surprise to fill the sack. Be on the lookout for that. That's going to be exciting. I happen to know what it is, but I don't want to ruin the surprise until the big reveal. So, on to our case today. I have, like I said, this really gnarly German dude, and he's probably going to make you regret the last time that you ate a hot dog. So, fair warning, everyone. If you are currently enjoying a hot dog, I suggest you put it down. Uh, We are talking about Carl Grossman today. Sometimes he's called Carl with a C. I've seen it spelled Carl with a K. And I've also seen it spelled as Carl Grobman, which is really weird. Um, I don't know if that's a translation thing or whatnot, because a lot of the material that I found did have to be translated. But either way, I think we should, since his name is very, very close to just the word gross, since it's Carl Grossman, I think we're just going to call him fucking Gross Carl. So that is what his name is for the rest of this episode. He is just Gross Carl. And you're about to find out why. Uh, We don't really know a whole lot about Gross Carl's early life, okay? We basically have to piece together what his life was like using his criminal record. Um, He was born Carl Frederick Wilhelm Grossman, and he was born December 13th, 1863, Yes, I'm kicking it old school again, like I did for my other case this week. And he was born in Neuruppen, Germany, although we don't know a whole lot, like I said, about his early childhood. We do know, I mean, it was 1863, but we do know about the age of 20, he had served his first sentence. And this was only a three-day stint that he did. For begging, but it's 1883, so, you know, hold your horses. We're just throwing people in the clink for three days for begging. Like, wasn't everybody begging? It was fucking 1883. Anyway, so most of his criminal history was like that, where he just had, like, these quick little stints that obviously didn't teach him anything. Soon after, he did a lot of his little stints for begging, and I I can only be so repetitive as I'm going over it here. He was then arrested for committing an unnatural sex act on a sheep in Mannheim in 1896. 
So when I read that, my first thought was, okay, an unnatural sex act on a sheep. I think we know what that means, okay? But why do we call it that? Can someone tell me what a natural sex act on a sheep would be? Can't we just say he was performing a sex act on a sheep and leave it at that? I don't know why we have to call it unnatural as if there are natural sex acts that are okay to inflict on sheep. The very next year, so that was 1896, and the very next year, he was convicted for a sexual assault on a 12-year-old girl, Nuremberg. Now, by this time, so we went from, oh, I don't know, like 1883 to 1897, and in that span of time, he had 25 convictions already under his belt. I don't know about you guys, but I'm thinking that Germany should have maybe seen a pattern by this time. I'm not sure. So not to worry, though, they allowed him uh, to be released after the sexual assault on a 12-year-old girl. He does two years, because that seems fair. And then he's let out, just so he can brutally attack and sexually assault two other young girls in Beirut. One girl was 10 and one was four and a half. And I'm not giving their names because they are minors and the attacks were very brutal. Um, lots of sexual assault. And tragically, the four-year-old girl passed away shortly after Gross Carl's sentence, which they did this time at least, give him 15 years. This is his third conviction for a sexual assault on a minor. But 20, what, sixth conviction at this point in time in total? And so now they decide 15 years should probably do it. And unfortunately, this little girl passes away after he was already sentenced. So they're not going to retry him for murder at that point in time, even though she did pass away from the attack, from the injuries that she, she sustained during his attack. So I will say this, at least it does appear as though he served his measly 15-year sentence in total. But once he's released, he's right back at it. He, immediately after release, he gets a job as a butcher, which this is never good. Just please don't give a violent person knives and flesh of any sort to cut up. But this is how he preferred to earn his living. Now, he did still beg on the streets. He liked to do that as well. But it got him into trouble, so he had to take up a more honest living as a butcher. And what he typically spent most of his money on were sex workers. So by the early 1900s, he had, I would say, early, because let's see, he was convicted in 1897 for that 15 years. So yeah, I guess we're still kind of in the early 1900s, but I had wrote in my notes early 1900s, but we're probably looking at more like 1913 or so. That's still, ah, yeah, sure out still the early 1900s. Give yourself a break. So he began renting a top floor apartment that was in absolutely horrific, dilapidated state, but Gross Carl doesn't fucking care because he's Gross Carl. I mean, I don't, I think that just having a place to take back the sex workers and to lay his head at night is really all he was interested in. And it was located at 8889, that's the address, uh, Langstra, Langstrasse. All right. 
It was located in the slums of the capital, and it was situated near the last stop of the Silazan Railway. If I'm butchering any of these names, please don't be offended or surprised because that's kind of what we do here. Oh, and I'll add too that I typically will look up in a translation the pronunciation, spell it phonetically in my notes, and still manage to butcher it. That's a special talent I have, so uh, apologies to anyone who lives there. Gross Carl was considered bitter and secretive by his neighbors. Yeah, probably because he on the inside is nothing but a horrible pedophile. But he was given his privacy by his landlord because he always paid his rent on time. I mean, these are hard times. It's about 1913, and it's if you pay your rent, I'll leave you alone. That's basically how his landlord handled things. Through his begging and his butcher uh, job that he had here and there, he was earning enough money to pay for a regular housekeeper for his Berlin apartment. But And I know what you're probably thinking. Charnel, you just said that his apartment was disgusting and in a bad state. And you're right. That is exactly what I said. But that was kind of a gimmick because none of the housekeepers lasted long. As soon as another applicant was sought, like as soon as he hired someone, it was like he was then having to hire somebody else. And we're going to find out why. We don't really know for sure when Gross Carl started murdering people. But what happened and what his MO is, is that to the outside world, like his landlord and his neighbors, it looked like he was hiring frequent housekeepers to clean, you know, his little shitty apartment. But really what he was doing was murdering them. So that's why he had to hire new ones so frequently. We don't really know when he started to murder his victims. And we will never really know how many victims he truly had. But during World War I, we know that he sold meat on the black market and later owned a hot dog stand at a train station near his home. Gross. Gross, Carl? No. It was strongly believed that he used the flesh from his victims as meat substitute, which he sold to the unsuspecting public and threw the bones and other inedible parts into the close body of water that was nearby his apartment. So, really, this is gross. I mean, it's not okay to unknowingly feed a human to other humans, but we really don't know what's in our hot dogs. I do feel like hot dogs are kind of the catch-all sausage substitute. They just, everything, lips, butts, assholes, they all go in there. So... I can see why people were duped because it already tastes like a menage of various meats. So this was the perfect uh, hideout for his human remains, I really think. It's disgusting, but I can see why, how he did it and why he thought it was a good idea. Now, he would often invite sex workers to his apartment for sex, or he would offer transient women food and a place to stay for the night in exchange for sex. As I mentioned before, he also put out ads for single women to do work for him, such as housework. And if you're on my video, you can see my air quotes here, his housework. Once a woman went into his apartment, they never came out. And just to spare you some of the more gruesome details, trigger, trigger, I can never say it, you guys, never, just, can you just know that on this podcast, it's trigger, okay, trigger, trigger alert, trigger alert, 
<laughs> I don't know why it's so hard for me to say, but it is. So he would rape, murder, and then dismember his victims all in his apartment before then disposing of the parts into the Lustendat Canal. Yeah, nailed it. Got it. I'm sure it's exactly how they pronounce it. And the Engelbecken Reservoir that were not too far from his apartment. So in May 1918, as bodies and parts in various stages of decomposition start to be discovered, coupled with the plethora of missing person cases in the area, the police realize that they possibly have a serial killer on the loose. Well, you don't say. So they decide to start investigating. By In October 1920, 33-year-old Frida Schubert goes missing. She had traveled to Berlin from Dresden, and on the day of her disappearance, she had been seen propositioning many men, and one eventually accepted her services. So bet- sometime between October 7th and October 9th in 1920, the remains of a young woman were found in the Lustendet Canal, which were later identified as those of Frida Schubert. Then, on October 16th, the Berliner Morgan Post reported that the killer had sawn sawn, sawn, sawn through um, Frida Schubert's bones with such brutality that the arm had been pulled from the shoulder and her heart had been pulled from her rib cage. Such brutal and horrific details, especially for a 1920s newspaper, I would think. The police believe, believed at the time that this was the work of a sadist, and they began questioning any potential witnesses, one of whom said that they saw the young woman, Frida Schubert, in the company of Carl Grossman. Fucking gross, Carl. So the police are like, okay, let's go search this apartment. And they do so on October 21st. They do find Frida's handbag, so her purse. But Gross Carl comes up with a very plausible explanation. And I couldn't find what I felt like it was a reliable source on what this explanation was. Some reports said that he explained that he had found it on the streets and just took it home. Another one said that he had saw a girl drop it at a store and he was trying to catch up with her and couldn't. So he was just holding on to it and then going to take it back to the store. I'm really not sure what explanation is actually true of this but either way whatever he really did say to the police at the time they believed it and they didn't have enough that's not enough evidence at the time for them to say you're the reason she went missing so they did not pursue the matter any further now in that was all that was October 21st so then in December 1920 Melanie Sommer a young woman vanishes and at this point in time as more and more people are reported missing the newspapers start picking this up and putting some pressure on the police saying okay you know we have all of these unexplained disappearances and all these bodies continue to be discovered by the police throughout 20 1921 
right up until early August. So here we are well over a year of just bodies being discovered, young women being reported missing, and the news reporting on all of this. Now, in August 1921, Elizabeth Barthel disappears, and that had made the 23rd missing person between May 1918 and August 1920. But just because this was the 23rd, 23rd, (laughs) just because this was the 23rd missing person case does not mean that there are only 23 victims because many of the type of, of women that Gross Carl targeted, not all of them may have had strong family ties or someone to notice when they went missing. So, there, at this point in time, between May 1918 and August 1921, they had only they had 23 reported missing women. But I strongly believe that there were many more than that. And at this point in time, the whoops, there you go. I'm hitting the microphone like a real professional over here. Um, at this point in time, the newspapers are dubbing him Gross Carl the Berlin Butcher. On the 13th of August, there was another woman, young woman, who disappeared. She was 24-year-old Johanna, oh, Johanna, your last name, Sosnowski. That's exactly what it looks like. The word so, snow, and ski. Sosnowski. Oh, honey, I'm sorry that you had to spell that in kindergarten and that I'm butchering it now. So she, poor Johanna, goes missing And she is another victim and is reported in the newspapers to likely be another victim of the Berlin Butcher. Now, Johanna worked as a maid, and she was actually a mother to a young child. And at this point in time, fucking gross Carl is 55 years old. And interestingly enough, he ends up being a primary person who's reporting these women missing Because a lot of these women he said he had hired as a maid and then they robbed him and never returned back to work. The gojones on this man to report women that he raped, murdered, and dismembered and more than likely fed to the public... He has the audacity to report first to the police that they're missing, saying that they robbed him. Now you see why I'm calling him Gross Carl. And so he would tell the police that he was their employer and that that they had taken off with something like he has any valuables. I mean, my God, look at his apartment. He has no valuables. But when in reality, you know, um, we know what had happened to these girls now, But doesn't this sound so familiar? It just, when I read that, it did not surprise me because how often do we see a violent offender that is first claiming to be the victim? And they like to report it to police and follow up with police because they like to be a part of the investigation. It's just interesting to me how some things over human history don't change. There's, there is like a pathology to some of this stuff. Now, what we believe to be fucking gross Carl's last murder 
was a 35-year-old woman. She was a cook. Her name was Maria Teresa. Ooh, Nishi? Nietzsche. Yeah, it's Nietzsche. So Maria Teresa, Teresa, not Teresa. I read it too fast. Maria Teresa Nietzsche. And she um, had recently been released from the Mobate prison after a month-long sentence. On August 21st, 1921, not 2021, 1921, she had met Gross Carl on the street and she joined him for drinks in several local pubs. When they returned to his apartment, he had asked her if she would like to have some coffee, you know, just a little dessert coffee after a night of drinking. And unfortunately, he had laced that coffee with cyanide. And then he bound her hands and feet before beating her across the head with an unknown object until she was deceased. And my son just walked in to ask me if he can borrow the car right when I had to say probably the most horrific part of this entire case. Yes, you may. (laughs) See you later. Love you. Bye-bye. So while fucking gross Carl viciously beat Teresa to death, her screams were heard by his landlord, 66-year-old Gertrude Grabowski. And Gertrude actually lived on the second floor. So Gertrude is the one that she's pretty used to Gross Carl having ladies over, hearing all kinds of things, but she is likely to turn the other way because he never raised a fuss and he paid his rent on time. However, Maria Theresia was so obviously screaming in distress, she couldn't ignore this. So she alerts the police and tells them that she can hear some sort of violent struggle coming from his apartment. And 41-year-old criminal commissioner Ernest Gannat arrives with other officers of the criminal police department. And they proceed to gain entrance into Gross Carl's apartment. When they enter, you guys, they freaking discover that Carl is in the damn middle of dismembering the body of Marie. There she was, lying disheveled on the bed. I can't imagine what that was like for those police officers to have to come in on. But either way, obviously they place him under arrest. I mean, I say obviously, but sometimes with some of these cases, it's almost like they're going to say, sure this is enough evidence we're just seeing you dismember this body but we're going to continue to investigate they did not do that so good for them instead they place fucking gross carl under arrest take him into custody and charge him with first degree murder but then they continue to search his apartment and they find a plethora of bloodstain evidence that they could confidently say at the time i mean this is you know 1921, um, they could say that there were at least three other victims that they could tell from the bloodstain evidence had been murdered there. Gross Carl was interviewed several times by police. Through the course of that, I don't know, I, I really looked to find information about, um, you know, the investigative, or uh, that's not the word I was looking for, sorry, the interview tactics and whatnot that were used, interrogation. That's the word I'm looking for. That's the I word I needed. But I really couldn't find a whole lot because in the beginning, he denies as much as he can 
I'm like, dude, you you literally were sawing a, a woman apart and you're going to deny this. But he does eventually admit to the murders of four women that he killed inside his apartment. But the police, they stumble upon a diary because they always have to fucking keep a diary, don't they? And this diary detailed all the other women that he had brutally raped and murdered. So a report from 1921 stated that Carl Grossman had confessed to the murders of 20 women over a 20-year period. It was believed that some of these women were the unidentified victims whose dismembered remains were found in the canal near Andrea Square and off from the um, Engelbecken Reservoir that I had mentioned earlier. But police actually ha- didn't have very much evidence to be able to connect Gross Carl with the reservoir um, crimes. I mean, especially in that time and when we're dealing with water the way that it washes away evidence. So it was hard to connect him specifically with the remains that they had found in that canal. Now, they did question his neighbors during this investigation, and it was revealed that Carl, gross Carl, was often found in the company of female companions who were mostly young. A lot of them were destitute. These are the things that the neighbors are saying. A lot of the women the neighbors didn't see because Carl had actually made a separate entrance into his apartment that the landlord did not know anything about. I'm sure it was not to building code. And he used it during the early morning hours when he would arrive home in a drunken stupor and when he was bringing either, you know, someone, a young woman from the bar or a sex worker or something like that. So even the neighbors really didn't have a good idea of just how many women he was actually bringing home. During the investigation, investigators became aware of the fact that during the war, he was a butcher. And his source of income during the war was alleged to have been from black market activities like peddling flesh meat. Flesh meat. Dear God, I'm sorry. Fresh meat. That is what is in my notes. But I mean, I guess it's all one and the same at this point in time. Either way you look at it. He would peddle this fresh meat to hungry Berlin residents. And the black market, I mean, there's a reason why it's called black market meat, right? It's not being checked. So the police highly suspect with his knowledge of butchery from his job as a butcher, coupled with his black market activities, more than likely he was using meat from his victims and making meals out of it for hungry hungry Berlinians. And it's the ah, it's just so wrong and nauseating and not okay. And I feel like by the time I am done with this podcast and however many uh, cannibals I'm going to cover or unsuspecting people that have to eat, unsuspecting humans have to eat other humans, how will I not become a vegetarian? I just, I know I say all the time how much I like meat, but the more I hear about these stories, the more I'm not sure I'm willing to take the risk. The thing is, is that the neighbors were reporting, often the, the neighbors would question 
him about this smell. There was a horrific smell, of course, coming from his apartment. And they are like, hey, bro, you know, you stanky. What is going on? And he would he would just make up some sort of really BS thing like, oh, I had some chicken that went bad. That's my garbage that was rotten. You know, it's so hot outside. I, I just forgot to take it out. I mean, I guess what are you supposed to do when they hadn't seen anything? So I don't think that they're immediately just going to jump to, hey, I think that you're cutting humans up and that's the smell I'm smelling. This one couple that were of, of neighbors that were interviewed by the police, their names were Manaheim and Helene Itzig, and they had actually become very suspicious of Gross Carl and his activities. So they go as far, <laughs> this is kind of terrifying too, they go as far as drilling a small hole in his door so that they could better observe what Gross Carl is doing. But they told investigators that they never saw him murder any of his victims. The only thing that they saw was how roughly he treated his female companions during sex. In other words, the it, the itzigs are beeping toms. And I don't know what they thought they were going to accomplish. If they really, maybe they really did suspect that he was murdering women. And he, they just thought by doing this, they would see that. But I'm going to throw this in here too. I have a feeling that Gross Carl knew that there was a hole, a peeping Tom hole in his door. And that is why in the view of the door, he only ever had rough interactions with these women instead of actually murdering them. He took them to the bedroom of the apartment each time to murder them from what investigators could tell from the blood evidence. So, you know, I do wonder if he just kind of got off on knowing that they might be watching and that is just a disgusting thought that's in my brain cavity right now. Now I'm going to tell you a little bit about his trial. So his trial began on July 2nd 1922 and the prosecution had 17 witnesses that they were going to have appear and, and testify for him. Not for him excuse me against him. Amongst these 17 witnesses one was a, a sex worker named Erica, and she said that she went to Gross Carl's apartment, but actually found it too disgusting and considered Gross Carl too gross and creepy. So she refused to complete the agreed upon sexual transaction. Good job, Erica. Way to follow your instincts, honey. So some of the women who had actually survived his sexual abuse and escaped with their lives were willing to testify. And one of them was an unemployed industrial worker who accepted his offer to work as a housekeeper in 1921. She recalled that she was immediately drugged with drink at his house and raped soon after. She did make a police report. Many of these women made reports against him, giving statements of what he looked like and everything. But, of course, they were considered unreliable sources because the police looked at them as if they were less simply because they were sex, wor sex workers or maids or whatever. So just based on that, the police decided that their stories were not plausible. This is disgusting. They were so similar within the stories, too, of being drugged and being raped. 
but and you've got all of these women going to the police saying that, plus bodies of young women showing up in the canal in a water reservoir, but you're not connecting these things. You're not taking this information simply because you view them as lower members of society because they're a sex worker or because they're a maid. I know that this was a different time, but I anybody else have a hard time just believing that we were this fucking stupid? I mean, truly. Remember the neighbor that was with the, the peeping hole neighbor, Helene uh, Itzig and her husband? Well, Helene actually was accused by Gross Carl for having known about the murders and attempting to blackmail him. So he's like, you know what? I'm not going to be the only one to go down for this. I that And this is why I think he knew that that hole was in his door and that they were watching because he decided to capitalize on that and say, you know what? They did see me. She did. I know she saw me murdering these women and she didn't do anything about it and she's just trying to blackmail me. It didn't work, by the way, just in case you were wondering. But the prosecution presented the court with a list of 23 women who had disappeared and amongst the names of some of the missing women who were suspected to have fallen victim to Gross Carl's sexual depravity. And these women were Marie Feld, Louise Werner, Lizbeth Potsky, Frida Thomas, Emma Boritsky, Albertine Asher, and 19-year-old Emma Bauman from Mecklenburg, and a woman known only as Martha from Poland. Poor Martha from Poland. So although these women, they weren't able to accuse him directly because of the complicity of their disappearances, it is considered highly likely that all of these women fell victim to Gross Carl. With the testimony of the 17 witnesses and whatnot, after all that, it really only took three days to hear all the testimony. And the jury did not take long at all to deliberate. They find him guilty of murder, and they sentenced him to death. Now, some reports had said that Gross Carl laughed when he was sentenced to be executed, which I guess wouldn't surprise me because... I feel like we say that a lot, that that is a very common of men, of, of not just men, but people like this, to, um, their, it's a pretty common reaction. We don't really know what his motivations were for this. Part of it comes from we don't know about his early childhood, you know. Did these women resemble his mother? Did he have an abusive, tragic childhood? I mean, he was born in the 1800s. Life was not easy. We know that. Uh, has anybody watched 1883? Uh, that that show will make you really thankful to be born in the era that we were. And the families of the victims never got answer answers to their questions about their missing loved ones because... July 5th, 1922, Carl Grossman committed suicide by hanging himself in his jail cell while awaiting execution. So that's how he goes out of this world. And he didn't have to really answer to his crimes um, in the way of, you know, in terms of the family getting closure and having any answers for their questions and or even being able to have the satisfaction of seeing knowing that their loved one's murderer is gone, you know, the way that that the court had ordered. I mean, I guess probably back in that day, it was probably going to be, well, 1922 might have been an electric chair, I suppose. But either way, 
that's not how he went, and he took his own life. So, yeah, that is the the story of fucking gross Carl Grossman. And I'm not really sure the the Berlin Butcher. I had never heard of it. So thank you to anyone who um, requested that case. And I have a brain bath for us. I'm, I, I think it'll make you chuckle. It's going to make you ponder your shoe choices. And I, but I don't know that's going to make you feel any cleaner. Um, <laughs> I th- and I'm going to be honest. I think this might be a good idea. So the title of this brain bath is Defective Sex Toys Are Being Recycled Into Fashionable Shoes. This is a recent article from August 19th, 2022. I almost said 1922. I'm stuck in the early 1900s here. Now, a little streetwear label has partnered with a giant in the adult toy industry to create a shoe that's derived in part from unused, that is the key word here, people, unused defective sex toys. So streetwear label Rose, it's called streetwear label Rose in good faith, Rose in good faith, and a sex toy company called, (laughs) this is genius, the sex toy company called Doc Johnson. They have partnered to create a shoe derived in part from the unused and defective sex toys. A little streetwear label Why does it keep saying the same thing? I'm sorry. It is the same sentence three times in a row. I apologize for that. So as defective amusements, as they say, come off the manufacturing line as misfits, they are now going to be turned into a shoe that looks a lot like Merrill's popular Hydromock or Yeezy's Foam Runners. They have a plastic sole that's about 15% sex toy. Now, I don't know what a Yeezy is, and I don't know what a Hydro Mock is, because I'm old as shit, and I don't keep up with these things. The picture does not look like a shoe that I would wear. It's almost like a, it's too close to a Croc style for me, but they look comfortable, so as long as they don't vibrate while I walk, I, I might check it out. Now, the shoe is the brainchild of David, I can't make this shit up. His last name is Tittlebaum. So David Tittlebaum is the founder of Rose in Good Faith. And Chad Braverman, chief operating officer for Doc Johnson, the adult toy company, that his father founded in 1976. That is a business to pass down to your children. So more than two years in the making, Plastic Soul has yet to create the buzz of a Yeezy or the kicks of other uh, uh, titans in the sneaker culture, and it doesn't particularly live up to its own marketing hype as a major sustainable option, but the two Los Angeles businessmen are proud nonetheless. This is a quote. Personally, I love shoes, so it was a cool product, a really interesting way to get Doc Johnson on board with something that I would never, ever do. Braveman, uh, oh, I'm sorry, Braverman said from the company's headquarters in the North Hollywood neighborhood of Los Angeles. Tittlebaum is a collaboration king with elevated Ed Hardy, Lil Peep, and Juice World hoodies. What the fuck did I just say? Who are those people? What are they? You guys are cooler than I am, I'm sure, because I bet a lot of you knew 
exactly what a little peep is in a juice world hoodie but here I am it, on if you're on the patreon video episode you can see that I'm wearing a shirt that I made myself for my local high school because there's a football game tonight so I have no idea what a juice world hoodie is but there's t-shirts and other merch that's under this tittle bombs belt <laughs> I am so immature. So so that's why he has a, a reputation for, you know, he's already starting to make a name for himself. So why not get on board with Doc Johnson and create these shoes that are made from at least 15% of unused uh, defective sex toys? So he was looking for something new. He met with an adult film company, which put him... Which, if you're looking for something new, why do you start at the adult film company? I'm not sure, but he knows more about it than I do. So he, they put him in line with Doc Johnson, and the rest is history. Instead of sending these lost sex toys, <laughs> all I can think of is the defective toys from Rudolph, you guys. The island of misfit toys. <laughs> is there an island? of misfit sex toys out there. <laughs> Please tell me it exists. But sadly, all of these sex toys, if they're defective, they just go to landfills. And so, you know, Tittlebaum and Braverman are like, let's get together. Let's make this a little bit better and at least put, instead of sending them to the landfills like this in the shape of a dildo, let's put them in a shoe that's going to last a long time and then they'll end up in the landfill later. It's fine. It's totally fine. So there, there you have it. Go get yourself a, you know, 15% dildo sold shoe. You never know. It really just might put a little pep in your step. You never know, guys. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. Thank you so much for listening and feel free to follow me on social media. That's where I post pictures. Yeah, I post pictures of cases and that is, I forgot what I was going to say next actually. Yes. And if you're so inclined, feel free to join Patreon where you do get video episodes plus bonus episodes and all kinds of other things uh, that you can go to. If you just type in patreon.com and then slash crime curious, I should pop up. But also on my social media pages, I've also posted the link as well. So you can also email me crimecurious at yahoo.com. I just recently had somebody email and say, I can't find the Patreon link. So I sent it to her. So we take, I take case suggestions there, um, brain baths. If you've got those, you guys have been sending some amazing ones that I am putting into future cases. So thank you so much for that. And just thank you all so much for listening and for the kind words of encouragement that I've been receiving. Um, it's really keeping me going. So I appreciate that. And I'll probably have a, a guest host for our next few cases. I do have some really big deep dives coming up as well. So stay tuned for that. And until next time, everybody, bye-bye. <laughs>